Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Some parents give their baby peanut butter right before their well-child appointment with me. I've known some people even to give it in our waiting room for the first time, just in case the baby has a reaction. They will at least be somewhere safe. And that's, that's fine with me. We do have epinephrine in our office. And more importantly, we have medical staff who can tell the difference between an allergic reaction and say a rash on the face that's just irritation from the food. The most important thing to me is that parents are giving these potential allergen foods to their babies sometime in that window of four to eight months of age. Food allergies are more common than they have ever been, and the idea of them makes parents really nervous. But you don't need to be nervous. Dr. Stephanie Leonard, a pediatric allergist and specialist in food allergies, is going to explain everything you need to know, and she's going to make you feel a lot less nervous about food allergies. Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. Dr. Stephanie Leonard established the Pediatric Food Allergy Center at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego back in 2011. She's the director of the center, which was the first food allergy center in Southern California. Why is she so passionate about this work? Her own story is an important part of the history of food allergy treatment. I was diagnosed with a peanut allergy when I was two years old. Back then, parents were told to delay introducing food allergens till age two or three. So at age two, I was given peanut butter for the first time and immediately just broke out from head to toe in hives. And I remember my mom tells me that she called the doctor and she said, something's wrong. And they're like, oh, she'll be fine. She's like, no, something's wrong. She, she brought me in and they treated me. And when I was young, I was probably the only person I knew with a food allergy. And now it's completely different. Uh, the prevalence of food allergy has uh, doubled and in some cases tripled, in, in nut allergies has tripled in the past few decades. But we didn't really know, you know, what to do with my food allergy except for to avoid the food. I never saw an allergist when I was young. I never got any guidance. EpiPens didn't come out until I was in high school. The biggest thing for food allergy is the threat of a, a fatal reaction, but also the quality of life. And I think that's where, as allergists, we can make one of the biggest impacts. For example, we know that People who have food allergy have a um, decreased quality of life compared to someone who doesn't. And it's comparable to having diabetes. 
in the sense that when you have a food allergy, you have to think about it every single day, every single meal, every time you put food in your mouth. And that can take a toll on you. As you grow up with a food allergy, you, you feel singled out. You're the person who has to have like a different dessert. You're the person who can't participate in this. You're the person who's sitting at the peanut-free table by themselves or with a few other people. And we also know that even bullying in school is increased with those who have food allergy uh, because it makes them different, right? Anything that makes us different can be a target. I've known uh, patients or families who have pulled their kids out of school because of it. I've also known, especially when, you know, kids are really young in preschool, um, parents not sending their kids to preschool because their kid has a multiple food allergies. And while peanut allergy is well understood, milk and egg allergy aren't by the general public. At the same time, people who have food allergies may be at more danger in restaurants because someone may think, ah, okay, they just don't want, you know, some milk in this or some dairy in this because maybe they have an intolerance. And they don't actually understand that you can have a serious reaction to something even like milk, even a little bit of butter on rice. That's what people with food allergy have to combat on a day-to-day basis, to get other people to understand and understand enough that they will help protect them, but not turn them off. Meaning, I think a lot of families have struggled in schools to be like the first family to say, I really need to protect my child. We really need to have these policies in school. And other parents are like, but it's the easiest for me to just send my kid to school with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The list of challenges that families dealing with a food allergy have to face could be its entire own episode. People with food allergies have to be constantly vigilant. It's exhausting for them. It makes social events difficult. Like kids' birthday parties are terrifying enough, even without the clown and bouncy house when you have a food allergy. Traveling takes more preparation, and even educating everyone that comes into contact with a child is really time-consuming. The other thing that can be really confusing is identifying the difference between a true allergic reaction to a food and a non-allergic reaction, or even what we call a food intolerance. Here, Dr. Leonard explains allergic reactions. When you have a true food allergy, is that your immune system makes this antibody called IgE. We call that the allergic antibody. It recognizes the the protein in the food, sees it as a threat, and mounts a response. So it triggers your allergy cells to release chemicals to try to fight it. Those cause symptoms. So there's two main parts of our immune system. The part of our immune system that fights off bacteria and viruses. So I'll call that the immunologic part of your immune system. And then the allergy part of your immune system that ends up causing allergies. But the really interesting part about why we even develop that part of our immune system is for parasites. So parasites are much larger than viruses and bacteria. And our white blood cells can't engulf them, can't combat them on a lower level. These are things like worms. And so our immune system had to develop a way to extrude or release chemicals that would be strong enough to break down a parasite. And that's why we have that part of the immune system. So part of the what people might have, might have heard of the hygiene theory is not really about dirt. It's more about parasites. So we have less parasitic diseases in this country 
Could that be a reason why our immune system started reacting to things it shouldn't be reacting to, like food? Or is the way we produce our food causing parts of that food to look like a parasite? That's the alternative. So when the allergy antibody uh, sees that food, it triggers our allergy cells, so mast cells or basophils, who have chemicals in them to combat a parasite. They release those chemicals. Those chemicals cause hives, itching, swelling, coughing, difficulty breathing, vomiting, and diarrhea because our allergy cells are in all those different parts of our body. They don't really know where the parasite is, and so they just release it kind of generally, and that's how you can get a systemic reaction. You can get a local reaction of a rash around the mouth because that's, right, that's, that's the most commonly seen initial reaction because that's where you're eating the food. And that's the first contact that your body sees. it. And we can't predict whether or not you would have a mild reaction or a severe reaction. There's no test that tells us how severe your allergy is. We know that you might have a severe allergy if you've had a, if you've had a severe reaction in the past. So what are the symptoms that may be confused with a true allergy? You can, in a very young baby, let's say they have a history of eczema or their skin is just sensitive because they're a baby, you might get a red rash around the mouth. Let's say it's flat, doesn't seem to bother the baby, goes away fairly quickly. It's where the food touched the skin. That might be just an irritant rash. That would be less concerning to me than if someone had hives. So hives look like welts, like big bug bites, and they're itchy. Uh, so often I have parents come in and, and they're concerned about Probably the most common foods that cause that are going to be things that are citrusy or acidic, so tomatoes, strawberries, other fruits, anything that's going to like be, be, have a lot of contact on the skin and can be acidic can cause rashes like that. I take it seriously if it's one of the top nine most common food allergens. So the top nine most common food allergens, I'd say in babies, the top three, egg, milk, and peanut. And then to round out the top nine, we have soy, wheat, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, and sesame. And you may have heard about sesame kind of being the ninth most common food allergen that was just added to the labeling uh, by law. So by law, those top nine food allergens have to be labeled in plain English on anything packaged to the U.S. So going back to, you know, symptoms that can overlap. So besides rashes... I see a lot of kids in my office with concern for food allergy due to rashes. And again, the most common would be that irritant rash. Second most common would be an eczema flare. Um, way back when, one of my mentors, Dr. Hugh Sampson, uh, did a study to try to convince people that food allergies and eczema were connected. Before that, people didn't really make that connection. He did this study where he took people with eczema and removed foods that seemed to potentially be flaring their eczema and then challenged them like a couple of weeks later. And it was very obvious that they had an immediate type reaction. So we kind of like we swung the pendulum and uh, to convince people that it was connected. And there's a lot to talk about in terms of eczema and foods. But it swung to the other side where people or families come in with children who have eczema and say, what food is this? What can I take out of my child's diet to make this eczema go away? And I have to remind them, and it's really important to know, that eczema is a primary skin disorder. You can have a child who's not eating anything and they will still have eczema. But sometimes 
uh, foods can, can flare eczema or make it worse. But just because you take a food out of the diet doesn't mean that eczema will go away completely. Other things affect the skin, humidity, temperature, whether or not you're sick, stress, so many things can affect it. And I am now seeing people take too many foods out of the diet, unnecessarily take foods out of the diet because of eczema. When you come to see me, my first job is, do you have a dangerous food allergy where you have a risk for anaphylaxis, which is a severe allergic reaction that can be life-threatening? Then once I have ruled that out, then we can talk about eczema. I typically say, if you can use skincare to control the, the eczema or the discomfort of eczema, the inflammation of eczema, then we try to take no foods out of the diet. And the reason for that is children who have eczema are more likely to be sensitized. So sensitized means your body recognizes the food and creates an IgE or allergic antibody. But just because you have that antibody doesn't necessarily mean that you will react when you eat that food. And we can talk about testing in a little bit. So if you're sensitized, that means your immune system recognizes that food. But what, let's say you're eating it every day and nothing's happening. Or maybe you have some eczema and your parents are wondering if it's affected. If you take that food out of the diet strictly, and then months or years down the line try to reintroduce it, you may have now lost your tolerance, so ability to eat it without clinical symptoms, and now developed a more dangerous type of food allergy. So that's what I'm trying to prevent. Developing a rash that can be associated with food is not always a food allergy, as in the kind that leads to anaphylaxis, difficulty breathing, vomiting, or even life-threatening symptoms. It can be really confusing to tell the difference. But there are tests, and there are lots of things that you can do to live with food allergies. And that's coming up next. Dr. Leonard told us about a study connecting eczema and food, and it's tempting to jump to the conclusion that your child's eczema can be treated with food elimination, but that's not what is recommended. And Dr. Leonard explains the complex reasons why. Probably the biggest thing I see that is a disservice to children with eczema and or food allergy is when someone comes in with eczema, but not an, a, a clear allergic reaction to a food, and a whole panel of tests are run for various foods that they may or may not already have in their diet. Now you have potentially, so 80% of children with eczema will test positive to some kind of allergen. Only 20 to 30% are actually allergic. And you're referring to blood tests for these allergens, right? Yes. Okay. I'm referring to IgE levels to the individual foods sent in a panel. So, and you're saying that that's not particularly useful information. It's more useful to know what they're actually reacting to in real life. Not only is it sometimes, it's confusing information. I think it does more harm than good to send an IgE panel of foods indiscriminately, meaning you have to know what this child has a risk for and only test that. Let me give you an example. You have someone with eczema go see their primary care doctor, and they say, I don't know what's causing this eczema. I'm struggling to control it. Is it an allergy? They said, well, let's see. 
So they send, instead of taking history of, have you noticed a particular food causing a flare? Have you tried avoiding it and then putting it back in the diet? Have you seen a pattern? They end up sending, I think it's because it's easy to send with one click, a whole environmental panel and then a whole food allergy panel. Let's say this is a two-year-old who's a picky eater and is eating chicken nuggets dipped in ketchup. And that's like what he, what he wants to eat every day for lunch and dinner. The panel has chicken and tomato on it. Those are rare food allergens. Those come back positive. And now the parents are concerned. Now they see all these positive tests. They don't know what it means. And now they're scared. So they take all these foods out of the diet. What is this kid eating at this point? And then they send them to the allergist and they end up in our office three, four, or five months later. I've seen indiscriminate testing and unnecessary removal of food from the diet lead to feeding issues, growth issues, anxiety. I would rather have that person be referred to an allergist and have them take the history and decide what's the appropriate testing. Allergy testing is not black and white. It's not yes, no, you have an allergy. It's how high is your Ig level to that food? How big is your skin test to that food? The larger the skin test, the higher the IgE level, the more likely it is you're allergic. So it gives us a probability. Why is it, why is it not accurate? It frustrates us as well. When you make antibodies to viruses and bacteria, it's all different types of antibodies. They see different parts of the virus and the bacteria. Same thing with IgE sees different parts of the peanut protein. Peanut protein is not just one protein. There's multiple parts of the protein that your immune system can recognize. So if you have an IgE level to peanut of five, for example, I don't know how strongly your antibody binds to the food. I don't know what part of the protein it may bind to the food. And that can make a difference of whether or not you actually have symptoms, whether or not your allergy cells are activated when you eat that food, and whether or not you have a reaction. Our testing also, unfortunately, doesn't tell us severity of allergy. I can't look at a number and say you have a severe peanut allergy. A lot of parents ask me, well, what's better, skin test or blood test? Skin testing and blood testing are equally good, and I often use them together. The skin test and the blood test are very sensitive, but not specific. And which means if you get a negative skin test or an undetectable IgE level, a negative blood test, then you have a less than 5 to 10% chance that you have a food allergy. So negative tests are better than positive tests. So that can be really reassuring to a parent. So a negative test is typically reassuring, yes. Now, if I have a, a mom who says, my child ate peanut and they developed hives, and I have a negative skin test in the office, then I get the blood test. If that's low or negative, then I offer a food challenge in the office. Because we know our testing is not perfect, the ultimate the test is when you eat this food, do you have symptoms? And so a, an, we call it an oral food challenge. Basically, it's a supervised feeding in the office, but you're in a safe place. And the way we do a food challenge, it's a long visit, is that we decide what is the serving size for this particular food for this age. We split it up into four doses. We start with a small amount. We wait 15, 20 minutes in between, give each of the four doses, and then watch them for two hours. Uh, a true food allergy typically occurs within two hours of ingestion of the food. If it occurs outside those two hours, we start thinking maybe something else is causing those symptoms. So that's why we watch them for two hours in the office. If they develop symptoms in between doses, we stop, we check, 
you know, is this a potentially a, 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 an allergic reaction developing? If we think it's not, we keep going. If we do think it's an allergic reaction, we stop the challenge, we treat with medication, we monitor them to make sure they're okay before they get discharged. That is considered the gold standard of diagnosis in food allergy is a food challenge. But if I have a history of someone reacting to a food and their testing cooperates a food allergy, and I think they're at risk, then I'm not going to do a food challenge just to make sure. We use it if we're not sure if somebody's allergic, and we use it to see if someone's outgrown their food allergy. How common is it to outgrow your food allergy? So it depends on the food. 80% of children outgrow egg, milk, soy, and wheat. I'd say the average age of outgrowing a food allergy is around age seven. But you have until you go through puberty to outgrow a food allergy. About 15 to 20% may outgrow peanut, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, sesame. When kids are really young, when they're diagnosed, I you know, diagnose most children probably uh, when they are less than three years of age for, with a food allergy, their immune system is still developing. And so things can change quickly. So I usually retest every six months. Once they hit age three, so age three is when you're making adult levels, of your allergy antibody, IgE, things slow down a little bit. And so then I check it once a year. But I check it, you know, all the way through puberty. So most of the time when I diagnose food allergy in children, especially infants and toddlers, it happens the first time they ingest the food. Now, people who are scientifically minded and know the immune system may say, but wait, don't you have to see the food for your immune system to make an antibody to it? Yes. But why are these kids reacting the first time they ingest the food? And we believe it's because of the environment. So children who have eczema are more likely to have a food allergy. And one of the theories is they have inflammation in their skin. And that inflammation triggers their immune system. And when they see an allergen through the skin that is more sensitizing, they're more likely to develop an adverse reaction to it. So we think that children in that age are being exposed to these allergens in the environment. So there have been studies looking and testing dust in households, and they find peanut allergen in dust and carpet, in the crib, in the kitchen. You can find those allergens in the dust in the house. So, and this is my own little theory, but we I have families who have like the oldest child has a peanut allergy. They take peanut out of the house. The second child comes along. Maybe they don't have eczema, maybe they do, but they haven't been exposed to peanut in the environment. And they, they, a lot of them don't have any food allergy. So that when the second kid comes around, so one of my theories is now family has now removed all the peanut allergen out of the house and they're not being exposed in the environment. But I can have a four-month-old who already has high levels to peanut and they haven't eaten any foods yet. The other thing I think is really important for, for moms to hear, the studies are conflicting about whether or not what mom is eating during pregnancy and lactation affect food allergy. So right now we have no recommendations uh, for moms to eat or not eat food allergens. And so I always tell moms, this is not your fault. The data does not support that what you did uh, gave your child a food allergy. And in fact, we believe that there's gen a genetic predisposition, and then it's probably something in the environment that's the second hit. The whole point of early introduction is we're trying to get that food into them so that their gut sees the food and goes, oh, okay, this is food, before their eczema skin sees the food and says danger. So the whole point is, is to get it into that gut because the default response of your gut to food is to recognize it as food and ignore it. 
the default, when your skin barrier is broken, when you have eczema, the default response to bacteria on your skin or other things in the environment is danger and inflammation. And that is more likely to lead to allergy. The two-hit hypothesis is the idea that two separate events are needed for an individual person to develop a food allergy. It explains why some people develop allergies while another person with the same exposures might not. Many factors probably do play a role in developing an allergy, like having eczema, the timing of when a child is exposed to potential allergens, or even the gut microbiota. Anyway, these factors are not really under our control, so the only treatments right now are reactionary. We treat when a reaction occurs. Or maybe some of this is under our control. Current research is looking at ways to prevent the body from reacting when you do have a food allergy and accidentally eat the allergen. I'll explain all of this in next week's episode. For now, doctors can only really offer support. So where can a family get support? One of the best resources is the FAIR website, which stands for Food Allergy Research and Education. It's at foodallergy.org. They're a group that works to enhance the lives of people living with food allergies. So what does Dr. Leonard like about this group? They have this whole section on the newly diagnosed that I think when parents are just overwhelmed, oh my gosh, my child actually has a food allergy. What do I do now? They have a whole section on the newly diagnosed. Then they have sections on school, travel, restaurants. They have little cards that you can make if you're traveling where you can put in your food allergen and it will translate it to that language. So I, was, I went to Japan for my honeymoon and I don't speak a lick of Japanese. I was worried about my allergy. I took my little card. I would hand it to them. They would take it back into the kitchen and then they would come back and they'd say yes or no to what I want to order. There's a second um, group, uh, FACT, and they are also really big on advocacy uh, for food allergy, so both in policies and laws, but also advocating for families like in the school system. And I also highly recommend that you check their website out for that kind of resource, but also for things like 504 plans in the school and, um, you know, how, what kind of questions to ask the school when your child's entering the school system. Obviously, if you have a child with a food allergy and you're sending them off to school, that could be very nerve-wracking. Now, you know, especially when they're little and you've, you've always been around them or you've been able to control their environment or they've been at a nut-free preschool and now they're going to the big school. I think my biggest advice is talk to the school first. If you are concerned uh, that it is not enough protection or you feel like they're not taking it seriously, talk to your allergist, your physician, but you can consider a 504 plan. 504 plans lay out exactly what needs to happen to keep that child safe. I don't think they're always needed, but situations where that might be appropriate would be a child with multiple food allergies. Uh, it's not just peanut. You can't just put them at the peanut-free table. I'll get back to that. But but this child can't eat anything at the school. Like they have to bring their own food and or they've had a severe reaction or they're very young. The younger the child, the more supervision needs to be there. And if the parents don't believe that the supervision is adequate, that is where potentially a 504 plan can come into play. Make sure they have an allergy and anaphylaxis emergency plan at school. They have two EpiPens for your child and an antihistamine. 
Schools have, again, slightly different policies, and we work with that. There are some schools that maybe don't have a nurse on campus the entire time, and they say, we don't want someone making a decision between Benadryl or EpiPen, so we're just going to give EpiPen for a reaction. In the end, that's okay. And the epinephrine, which is the medication, the EpiPen is a very safe medication. Even if you gave it to somebody who didn't need it, you would not harm them. An epinephrine auto-injector contains epinephrine, which is like adrenaline, and it treats the two most dangerous parts of an allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, which is trouble breathing and a drop in blood pressure. So adrenaline, right, opens up your lungs, brings up your blood pressure. But epinephrine does something very important that, that something like an antihistamine will not do. It stops the allergic reaction. It stabilizes those allergy cells, so they stop releasing their chemicals. Benadryl, Zyrtec, Claritin. Antihistamines don't do that. Antihistamines are really good for rash, redness, itch. Epinephrine is not good for rash, redness, and itch because it constricts your blood vessels, so it doesn't really reach the skin. So epinephrine we use for internal symptoms, and then Benadryl we use for the external symptoms. The first-line treatment for an internal systemic anaphylactic reaction is epinephrine. We don't want people giving an antihistamine and waiting to see if it gets worse. So if you have any internal symptoms, so that's breathing problems, coughing, wheezing, throat symptoms, hoarse voice, can't swallow, can't speak, vomiting, diarrhea, fainting or feeling dizzy, which would indicate potentially your blood pressure is dropping. For all of those, it's always epinephrine first. If they also have a rash or itching, also give them the antihistamine. There is a new form of epinephrine, a nasal spray, to deliver epinephrine that is being considered by the FDA currently. Obviously, finding other ways to deliver epinephrine that because I think it being in a, an injectable uh, is a barrier for some people. The current treatment for anaphylaxis from a food is to give epinephrine, even in the case that you think someone might be having symptoms of an allergic reaction, even if you're not sure. And you need to give as many doses as you need to treat the internal symptoms. Also, give an antihistamine if there are external symptoms like rash or itching and go to the hospital because you don't know if the person is going to need more treatment. Don't be afraid to treat with the epinephrine just because you think you're going to have to go to the hospital. Dr. Leonard hinted at new treatments on the horizon for easier-to-use epinephrine forms that aren't injectable, but even more exciting is what's on the horizon. Dr. Leonard helps patients in her clinic to understand, prevent, and treat allergic reactions to foods when they happen. But outside of the clinic walls, she's investigating innovative treatments that can put patients into remission from their food allergy, so they don't even react if they have an accidental exposure. If someone said, if you could like get three wishes from a genie in a bottle, my first wish would be, I wanna go travel and I wanna walk down the street and eat something from a street vendor in a foreign country where I don't speak the language and not worry that I'm gonna have a bad reaction. If someone could cure food allergy, that would be the first thing I would do. I didn't grow up, again, with, uh, I never saw a food, uh, an allergist. There weren't really food allergy specialists when I grew up. It was just my pediatrician who was managing it. There's so much support and education that we can do without even talking about therapies for our families with food allergy. I think it's a, it can be a scary world out there and people are starting to understand food allergy more, but there's still a lot of mis misconceptions. I think one of the, the things that I can offer as someone who grew up with a food allergy 
to parents is, okay, you know, here's a doctor who who has lived this long, who has a successful career, even with a food allergy, like my kid can make it too. But also I understand the struggles and I can use my own experience, but also my expertise in treatment to help them. A genie has not come to her, so she's working to make her wish come true for the next generation. We talked today about food allergy, but if you'd like to know more about food intolerances, be sure to follow the show so you don't miss this week's bonus episode when we talk about food intolerance, how they're different, and how they can be managed. For the resources mentioned in the show, check out the show notes for links to the FAIR and FACT allergy resource websites. Do you know a family dealing with food allergies? Share this episode with them. They're going to appreciate you reaching out to them. For more from the pediatrician next door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.